good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? We got to do better than that. It's a, it's a launch of a new series. How are you doing this morning? There we go. Thank you. Uh, I'm excited to be here to, to launch this series with you this morning. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Carter. I'm the lead pastor here at Crossbridge. And I am super excited about what we're going to be traveling through this summer, which we've said it multiple times, you see on the screen, and that is the book of Romans. We're going to be spending 14 weeks this summer in this transformative and powerful letter written by the Apostle Paul. And one of the questions that we have received multiple times since we put this out in the past week is, why did you spell Romans wrong? Why is it spelled with a V at the end? And the reason we did this is not just simply because I think it looks better than our English spelling, but it's because this is the way that Romans is spelled in the Vulgate, in the Latin translation, one of the very first translations of Scripture in the fourth century. It's spelled this way, and it's pronounced Romanus. And the reason that we wanted to spell it this way is not only because I think it looks cool, but also because we want this summer to travel back, to travel into God's Word, to, to exegete the text here, and to take our time chapter by chapter to see what God said to His people then, what God said to His people in the 4th century, and in the 10th century, and the 15th century, and what He says to us today. And the word Romanus has the word us in it. And we believe that God has a word for each and every one of us. Regardless of whether you have spent years studying this letter, whether this is the first time you've heard it, that God has a word for you. And that if you travel with us, if you stay with us both online and in person, that you will see this gospel letter written for God's people. And I think it's so important that we dive into this letter because I think for many of us, the book of Romans can kind of feel like colonizing Mars. Here's what I mean by that. All of us here are intrigued or we at least are aware of our attempts as human civilization to colonize Mars. We know that there's, there's a lot of movement towards this end. We've seen the pictures, the rocket launches, we're following Elon Musk's tweets to see what SpaceX is doing. And we're fascinated. We've seen maybe the drone shots or the drone videos, and we know the planet doesn't look great, but maybe we can make it great one day. And so we're looking at it really just through pictures and little glimpses, but we see it from afar. We're tr we trust the science and all of the details to the experts. Let the experts figure that out. We'll watch from afar. We'll get some pictures. We'll get some snapshots, some nice graphics, and then we'll kind of understand what's going to happen when we colonize Mars. And I think a lot of people, for this book, the book of Romans, we look at it from afar. You have maybe heard a verse before. Maybe you've memorized a few verses in the book of Romans. Possibly you've been through a Bible study. You've certainly, if you've been in the church for any period of time, heard a sermon or two out of this book. But maybe it feels as if this letter, which is deep and theologically rich, is something that you need to entrust to the experts. That when you try to dive in yourself, when you try to read it, it feels like the science of colonizing Mars. Like, I, I, I don't understand what's happening here. Let me entrust that to the experts, and I'll listen to some sermons. But I really believe that if we together go through this if you engage in that resource table and get some of that literature and form a small group, 
read it on your own, that you will see that this letter is not only approachable, but it is unbelievably transformative. In fact, this book, the book of Romans, written by the Apostle Paul, transformed our entire world. Martin Luther, one of the leaders of the Reformation, said that when he read this book, it changed everything for him and in fact was the catalyst that led to the Reformation. St. Augustine was changed by this book. John Stott was changed by this book. So many men and women of faith have looked into this and have wrestled with it and have, sought, have seen the good news. This gospel letter has brought life and transformative, a transformative work in their own personal lives. And that's my prayer for us this summer, that we engage that way with that type of expectation because God has a word for each and every one of us. Amen? So let's start with a little bit of the basics of this letter. This was written around the time of AD 57, 25 years or so after the death and resurrection of Christ. The Apostle Paul writes this letter to the church, you guessed it, in Rome. Now, Rome is an interesting city at the time because it's very fractured. There's seven hills or seven mountains in Rome, and the rich live up on the mountaintops, and the poor live down in the valley around the riverbanks and outside of the the city. Not unlike today, the rich have the best property, and the poor are kind of in the valley, overlooked. And so it has this fractured environment between the rich and the poor, and the church finds itself in the valley with the poor and outside the city. And the church is living in this fractured city with different traditions and different religions and all these different things competing and the rich and the poor gap. And then the church itself is also fractured because we see that the church, though is in the place of poverty where the poor are living, there are certainly rich that are traveling down the hills and down the mountains to be there, which would have been very unique. So the rich and the poor in the church are are kind of mingling together, but then you also have Jewish Christians and Gentile, non-Jewish Christians, mingling as well, which was not normal. Very different people, different religious backgrounds, different festivals, different traditions, different family structures. All of these different things coming together in the church, they're all claiming faith in Jesus Christ as the Savior, And yet, there's a lot of hostility and disagreement. Do you know that Christians don't always love and forgive and seek unity with one another like they should? It's true here. It's true here. So we have a fractured church in a fractured society. Sound familiar? It's relevant. And the Apostle Paul is looking into this church. He has a heart for these people, and he has a strategy to bring unity. And it's really a simple strategy. Teach the gospel, the uniting force of God's people. And that's what this letter is. It is a gospel letter taking apart the gospel and seeing every aspect of it, all of its depth and beauty and complexity, so that it might bring unity to people that are fractured. And so that is what he is doing here in this letter. And he begins in verse one by introducing himself. He says this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Right at the very beginning, Paul, 
a servant. That word servant in Greek is doulos, which means slave. It says, I am a servant. I am a slave of God, meaning I have a master, one that has authority over my life, and I am writing under that authority. I am a slave to God who has authority over my life and a calling on my life. And here's what it is. He says, I am called to be an apostle. I am called to be an apostle. That means a sent one. Someone that has seen the resurrected Christ and has been called by Christ to go and bring what he says, the gospel of God. He says, at the very beginning, let me, let me explain to you who I am. I am under the authority of God, called to be a, an apostle, a sent one, to bring you what I'm about to write in this entire letter, which is the gospel, the good news of God. And that word would have been a very familiar term to those that are reading gospel. This is not an inherently Christian word. It was a common word in the time. The word gospel means good herald, good news. It's a proclamation of victory. See, the way that it was used before was with Roman emperors, like Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar had a gospel. See, what would take place is the Roman military would go out outside of the empire, and they would, they would fight enemies and barbarians, other nations. And when they were victorious... They would write a gospel, a good news proclamation about their victories in battle. They would send it back with a messenger that would go to the villages and to the towns and to the cities and would declare this proclamation of victory in a foreign land for the people of the Roman Empire. And this proclamation would say, we are victorious against the battle of our enemies, and as a benefit to being a part of the Roman Empire, you now receive all of these blessings. All of these resources and benefits are now yours. So the Apostle Paul says, I'm about to tell you about the gospel of God. The good news proclamation of God's victory over your enemies and the benefits that comes through faith in that good news. And he begins to explain a little bit about what this gospel is at the very beginning. In verse 2, he says this. The gospel of God which he promised before him through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. So he's speaking here to those Jewish Christians. He's saying, I want you to understand that what I'm about to tell you is a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. The Old Testament Scriptures are pointing forward to this, which is what? Verse 3 and 4. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's what he says. The gospel is a person, not a concept. The gospel is a person, not a concept. The Apostle Paul says that this gospel is about the Son of God according to the flesh. So this gospel is about somebody who was made flesh, fully human. And also this gospel is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies that are pointing to this person. He says that this person, this human, was a descendant of David. See, the Jewish Christians in the church and Jewish 
men and women would have understood that the, the covenant, the promise to David was that from his lineage would come the one who would establish God's kingdom forever, the Savior, the King of Kings. So this one who is fully human, who is the Son of God, is from the lineage of David. He has fulfilled Old Testament prophecy, and he is divine because it says that he is not only the Son of God declared, anybody can declare something, but it's proven by, what does he say? By his resurrection from the dead. So we have a fully human man who is a who has fulfilled old testament prophecy who is divine proven in his resurrection and then the apostle paul names him jesus christ our lord the gospel is about a person not a concept a real person in real time real events and it would have been understood and, and in fact verified because remember this letter is written 25 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. This isn't written hundreds of years later. Those in Rome have heard about Jesus, the one who claimed to be the Son of God who was crucified and buried and who his followers claim is resurrected from the dead but other people believe that maybe the body's stolen. They would have heard about this and, Jesus, and, and the Apostle Paul says this Jesus Christ is the good news. He is this good herald pronouncement. He is the one who has defeated your enemies. He is fully human and divine and fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. And he is the one that has changed my life. The Apostle Paul speaks a little bit to this in verse 5 through 7. He says, through whom, this, through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. I am called to be an apostle because of this person, because of this gospel, who is Jesus. He's called me and sent me to all the nations to proclaim this news, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's telling them who he is. He's speaking about the gospel. He says the gospel has changed his life. It's called him to bring this message to all the nations. And then he looks at the church in Rome, a fractured church in a fractured society, in the same way he looks at us. And he says this, you are called to belong to Christ. And that word is so important, belong what does it mean to belong to Christ? You see, each and every one of us here in this room understands that belonging is important. There's an innate desire in each one of us to belong, to feel connected. We, we seek out and pursue romance so that we might belong to somebody else. We seek to maintain a stable family environment so that there is belonging with each other. When you move to a new community or to a new city, one of the very first things you do is you look for a group of friends or a community to belong to. And many of us engage social media to maintain a sense of belonging with friends in other countries, in other states, in other cities, or to feel belonging even with people we know little, a sense of connection. See, we know that belonging is important because 
if you've ever been in a place or if you're in a place now where you feel as if you don't have that to the degree that you desire, that sense of connection with other people, you know the opposite of belonging, which is a feeling of isolation, of loneliness, a, feel, a feeling of being overlooked, of not fitting in, and being unloved. See, the chief result of a lack of belonging is a feeling of being unloved. It's a feeling of being unloved. And it is very emotionally and mentally destructive to feel like you don't belong, to feel unloved. But it doesn't only affect us emotionally and mentally, it also affects us spiritually. To feel like you don't belong to Christ. To feel like you're overlooked by God. Paul says you belong to Christ and you are loved by God. Now, many of us may read that and hear that and we say, yes, I belong to Christ and I'm loved by God. But I know without even knowing each and every one of your stories that you don't always feel that way. You don't always feel that way. You feel disconnected in your faith. You feel like you don't fit in with God and his word and his church because of things that you're going through and struggles that you have. You feel maybe overlooked by God because you've been praying for something. You've been asking for a blessing, for something in your life, and you feel as if God is not listening. He's overlooking you. You say, oh, of course I belong to God and I am loved by God. You say it with your mouth, but maybe inside there's a message you're preaching to yourself, which is I'm unloved. I'm unlovable. How can I be loved by God? How can I belong to Christ with all the things that are happening inside of me, all the thoughts I'm thinking, all the actions I'm making that nobody knows? You feel unloved. You feel like there's no way you can belong. And, and here's the, the danger and it's why it's spiritually destructive. If you don't experience or you doubt that you belong to Christ and that you're loved by God, it leads you to try to manufacture that in your life and in your faith in a few ways. One, it can lead you to say, well, listen, if I'm going to really experience being loved by God and loved by God's people and I'm going to belong, then I need to improve myself morally. I need to kind of work on behavior modification. I need to perform better because if I perform better and I'm, I, I make better decisions and wiser decisions, then God will love me more and other people will love me as well because they'll see that. That's destructive. Another thing that can happen is that you say, listen, I've been trying God to follow your truth. It isn't working for me, so I'm gonna try to create my truth now. I'm gonna take some of yours and I'm gonna take some other things and I'm gonna try to fashion and manufacture a sense of belonging emotionally, mentally, spiritually, for myself. And then the last thing that can happen is that you just kind of give up and you put on a facade. You put on a facade with God when you pray. It's kind of rote, generic prayers. You don't really expose who you are. You're not vulnerable. And you're certainly not like that with other people either. You keep up a facade. And all of these things will never bring about true belonging. You will never experience true belonging with a facade by kind of creating your own truth or, or focusing on behavior modification. 
You see, to experience true belonging requires that you believe that you are loved by God and that you belong to Christ. That you are loved by God and that you belong to Christ. And every time that there are lies in your heart and in your mind that tell you can't be loved by God, you don't belong to Christ. Every time that you hear that, what does the Apostle Paul say? To the church in Rome, as he says to each and every one of us, he says, remember this, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That God the Father speaks grace over you and Jesus himself, because you belong to him, brings peace to you. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, belonging is founded in the proclamation of gospel truth over you. Gospel truth spoken over you begins to reveal the truth that you belong to Christ and you are loved by God. But that's not where it ends. It doesn't end there. Brene Brown, who is an author and professor, has a great quote on belonging. She says this about true belonging. True belonging is a type of belonging that never requires us to be inauthentic or change who we are, but a type of belonging that demands who we are, that we be who we are, even when we jeopardize connection with other people, even when we have to say, I disagree, that's not funny, I'm not on board. There's a paradox here. She says, if you want to belong... You need to be willing to stand and be brave. You need to be willing to to hold fast to your convictions. Because when you belong to somebody, when you really belong to somebody or to a community, you are willing to stand for them. Even if you stand alone, even if it sacrifices connections with other people, when you really belong to somebody, you do not hide your love for them. You do not change your attitude and actions when you're around different people to fit into them. You stand, even if it means alone, because you know that you belong to this community or to this person and that you are loved. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul says himself. Look what he says in verse 16. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That true belonging breeds bravery. True belonging breeds bravery. And that's true in your relationships, and it is certainly true in your faith. When you understand that you belong to Christ and you are loved by God, You are not ashamed of the gospel. You are not ashamed of the good news. You are not ashamed of Jesus. You don't hide your love for him. You don't change who you are and your attitudes and actions when you're around different people. It is unfathomable to consider that you would hide that love and that belonging. Why? Why is it unfathomable for for a Christian to hide their love and to be ashamed of the good news of the gospel? The Apostle Paul says why. For it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Here's why it is unfathomable to be ashamed of the good news of Jesus Christ, of the gospel. Because it is the power of God. 
It is not a power. It doesn't, it, it's not something that has power. It is the power. The gospel message is the power of God. It has power to change everything. It has power to change the entire world. It has power to change a fractured church. It has power to change a fractured country. It has power to change fractured people. It is the power of God. Not a power, doesn't have power. It is the power. Theo Doret, who was a Syrian bishop in the fifth, fifth century, says one of my favorite things about the gospel he says this, he compares it to a pepper. He says, a pepper outwardly seems to be cold, but the person who crunches it between the teeth experiences the sensation of burning fire. You may have heard the gospel from a distance and it feels cold. Maybe you've been going to church for a while and it feels cold. You don't understand the attraction, but when you take a bite, there's a sensation of burning fire. That there is power here that you didn't see until you tasted of it. See, that is the gospel message. It is a burning fire. It is the power of God. Why would we be ashamed of something that is the most transformative power in the world? Power to change us, power to change the church, power to change anything. It is the power of God. And it leads you to not only recognize that you belong to Christ, that you're loved by God, but that you can be brave. It breeds bravery because it changes your identity. When you belong to someone and when you are loved by them and when, in this case, when the gospel message which is proclaimed over you that tells you you're loved by God and that you belong to Christ, when that is in fact the power of God to change you and everything else, it changes your identity. It changes who you are. It changes everything about you. So I, I love to say at Crossbridge that you can belong before you believe. And I mean that. At this church, you can belong before you believe. You are welcome here with your doubts. You are welcome here regardless of where you are at in your spiritual journey. And we will walk with you. You can belong before you believe. But there's something very true that we have to remember. That belief brings true belonging. You cannot experience true belonging in Christ. You will not experience the power of God that can change everything. You will not experience the love of God without belief. Belief brings true belonging. And that's how the Apostle Paul rounds out this section in verse 17. He says, listen, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for everyone that believes. No distinction. Jew and Greek, everyone. And then he says this, for in it, for in the gospel, the power of God, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. It is revealed from faith for faith. What does that mean? I love it. From faith, for faith. Well, he's introducing a very important word that he will, he will deal with multiple times in this letter, and that is the word righteous. Righteous, to be made right. Justice. And this word righteous 
is a, a judicial word. It comes from the Hebrew justice system. And that system is very different from ours. And it's important to understand so you know exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying. The, the Hebrew justice system had three parties. A judge, a plaintiff, one bringing the accusation and the lawsuit, and then a defendant. There was no jury of peers. There's no prosecuting attorney. There's no defense attorney. It's just the judge, the plaintiff bringing the accusation, and then the defendant. And the judge would receive all of the information, and then it was said that the judge was meant to show his righteousness. As he dealt with all of the facts and all of the information that was given, he was to show his righteousness, to show that he is a just judge. So here the Apostle Paul says what? For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. How does God show his righteousness? See, God is the judge, and we are the defendant. Who's the plaintiff bringing the accusation? Sin and death. And sin and death is crying over us. They're guilty. Guilty of sin, deserving of death, throwing out all of the accusations. And God as the judge is receiving And what is our defense? Can you justify all of your sin? Or even any of your sin? Can you hold back death? Is there any defense that you can mount against your failures and your brokenness and your guilt and your deserving of death? No. So what does a defendant say to God? The defendant says, God, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I'm guilty of sin. I'm deserving of death. But my hope is in the power of God, is in your power. I belong to Christ not because I deserve it, not because I've earned it. I am loved by God not because I deserve it and not because I earned it. But I know that your power, God, has been proclaimed over me. It has been infused in me. I am now declared righteous. I am no longer guilty. I am no longer holding to that debt which has been paid because Christ has died for me. I am free. And so my life, God, is in your hands. I claim the cross. I claim the resurrection. I claim that I am declared righteous because of your power. And what does God do as the judge? He shows his righteousness. And what's the verdict? You're forgiven. You're free. His grace is proclaimed over us. The righteousness of God is revealed, the Apostle Paul says, from faith. From faith, you receive and you know, despite your failures, despite your brokenness, despite the things that you even currently struggle with, that you are declared righteous, that you are forgiven, that you are free, that God has shown his righteousness to you on the cross, and now you are no longer seen as guilty, but righteous. Isn't that amazing? This is who you are now from faith. 
from faith you are declared righteous. And when you receive this, it changes you for faith. See, he says that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. From faith you see God's righteousness, which changes your faith now. It changes the way that you live in the moment. From faith for faith. How he closes the verse. He says, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That is your identity. Your identity is your faith in Christ. That God has shown his righteousness to you. That you belong. Even when you doubt it, you belong to Christ from faith. That you are loved by God even when you doubt it from faith. And so now you can live for faith. You can believe that the gospel message is the power to change everything. A fractured life, a fractured community, a fracturing church, a fractured world. You can live for faith. You don't have to live in despair. You can live with hope because you know who God is and you know the power of his message. You've seen it in your life from faith, so now you can live for faith. You see, we have a tendency as people to create categories and to put people in different categories. And we have a tendency as people to create divisions. And we are okay with those divisions at times because we don't want to really be with the people on the other side. But what does the gospel do? It blows up all of those categories and all of those divisions. In fact, that word, power, that word power is where the Greek word power is where we get the word dynamite. Isn't that awesome? Dynamite. The power of God. The dynamite of God blows up every category, every division, every lie. It is the power of God. From faith, you see the righteousness of God. You can live for faith now, knowing that the power of God, the dynamite of God, can blow up every division, every lie, every category, and bring unity. You see, the Apostle Paul knows that there's only one thing that can unite fractured people. There's only one thing that can unite you to your Savior and to your God, and that is the power of God, which is the gospel message itself. We are church to be people that believe in that power, that believe in the gospel message. We are to be people that know that we belong to Christ because God has shown his righteousness and we are declared righteous. And we are to be people that become those that live by faith. By faith, believing in the dynamite of God that can blow up any lie and any division, any category, and any identity that is not our identity rooted in Christ, in our lives, in our church, in our world. My prayer is that as we move through this letter is that that is what we would see and that is what we would cling to. And that is what we would be excited about seeing take place in our life, in our church, and in our world as it goes out, as we live unashamed. Amen? Will you pray with me? God, we are here as broken people, but you are a good God. You are a gracious God, one who has shown his righteousness to us. Lord, I pray that as we consider this gift 
of salvation, the power of God transforming our life and our world, that we would live for faith, that we would have hope in your good news message, that you have won the battle, we are victorious. I pray that each and every one of us this morning would experience your love. That would move us deeply to not be ashamed of the gospel for it is your power, God, your dynamite. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.